Greetings, everyone. Uh, greetings to those who are here uh, in, in body and soul, and to those who are following and uh, participating in this session uh, via Zoom. It's an enormous privilege for me to introduce and welcome my friend, colleague, and countryman, Claudio Carvalhais, as, they, as he continues the 2021 students' lecture series at Princeton Theological Seminary. Dr. Carvalhais is Associate Professor of Worship at Union Theological Seminary in New York City and a dynamic and sought-after public speaker who sees himself as an earth thinker, a theologian, a liturgist, and an artist. A native Brazilian, he completed his PhD in liturgy and theology at Union Theological Seminary in 2007. He earned a Master of Philosophy degree from the Methodist University of Sao Paulo and a Master of Divinity from the Presbyterian, Independent Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Sao Paulo. An ordained pastor within the PCUSA, Dr. Carvalhais taught at McCormick Theological Seminary, Lutheran Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and Louisville, Presbyterian Theological Seminary before joining Union Theological Seminary. He has preached and performed both in many events around the world, including the Festival of Homiletics, the Academy of Homiletics, the Wild Goose Festival, Proctor Institute for Child Advocacy Ministry, the Jubilee 800 Order of the Preachers of Preachers of the Dominican Order in Italy, and the Council of World Mission in Mexico. He led worship for the All African Council of Churches in Mozambique, taught at the Global Institute of Theology of the World Communion of Reformed Churches, and leads worship and teaches at the Hispanic Summer Program since 2013. Dr. Carvalhais is widely published among his many books and articles. He is the author of What Does Worship Have to Do With It? Interpreting Life, Church, and World Liturgically, published with Cascade Books. He's also the author of Eucharist and Globalization, Redrawing the Borders of Eucharistic Hospitality, and of the recent book, Praying, Praying with Every Heart, Orienting Our Lives to the Holiness of the World. He has edited the groundbreaking book, Liturgy in Postcolonial Perspectives, and the unique liturgical resource, Liturgies from Below, Prayers from People at the Ends of the World, published last year with Abingdon Press, a prayer book resulting from field work in four continents with more than 100 people. In addition to all of this, Claudio Carvalhais is an inspiring, generous, and beautiful human being. As a friend, I have experienced his generosity many times. He is a wonderful son, husband, and father. His wife, Katie, his children, Libby, Sissy, and Ike, are the light of his life. Claudio speaks with passion on matters of injustice, oppression, and suffering because he has seen these things firsthand. He truly empathizes with those who are forcibly impoverished, with migrants of all sorts, indigenous people, people of other faiths, and with the earth as such as he made sure to tell us last evening. If you ever visit his social media, you may end up finding him turning his encounter with a dead scroll into a sacred event. Claude is not a regular scholar, even though his scholarship is of the highest quality. A student commented on last night's lecture said that uh, he appeals to all our sins. And boy, he does indeed. So let's jointly welcome Professor Claude Carvalhais. Thank you so much for coming this afternoon. I'm blessed, blessed by uh, your presence here. And um, 
If you didn't come yesterday, today you have uh, this um, pages in your chair, which is like most of the uh, um, quotes that I use. Not all, but most of them are here, so you can follow here according to each lecture. Uh, we are also, yesterday we were watching the Exterminate the Brutes. Today you're going to see the kingdom. How fungi, fungi. Uh, I don't know how you say that, made our world. Uh, and I want to honor uh, also everybody who's on, on Zoom. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it that uh, you're coming. I wanted to honor my... Oh, this. There you go. Now, Trey. Good, huh? Uh, everybody from also Brazil, and I want to I want to honor uh, Professor Mark Ellis, a uh, fantastic Jewish liberation theologian who is on on Zoom as well. It's been an honor to me to uh, be blessed by Professor Ellis, and thank you all again for coming. Um, so as I, as I said yesterday, and trying to appeal to all of the senses. I want to also, every lecture I do is also a performance, so you can have a sense of see and feel and, and, and understand things from a different perspective. And I think by the end of the lecture, I hope you will get why I have this very nice outfit. And I can give you the address of the uh, person who, uh, if you're interested. But anyways, let's start with the uh, kingdom. So let's, let's start just by defining, I'm starting with a, a term from another field. And as you see, I think for the ways in which we need to change, we need to move into other fields if we are to do something different. So I'm, I'm borrowing this term from um, the biology. And Emanuele Coscia um, defines trans, uh, uh, metamorphosis in this way. Let us call metamorphosis this twofold self-evident truth. Every living thing is in itself a plurality of forms, simultaneously present and successive. But none of these forms truly exists autonomously and separately, because they're always defined in immediate continuity with an infinity number of others that, came, that come before and after. Metamorphosis is both the force that allows every living thing to be staged simultaneously and successively across several forms, and the breath of life that connects those forms with one another, allowing them to pass into the other. Beautiful, isn't it? There's just one life that we all share. One life. Every living being everywhere in the planet shares this one life. Biologically, we are all results of metamorphosis, a family made of various forms of life. Humans, minerals, veget vegetation, stars, air, clouds, fire. And once we are born, we are the results of metamorphosis. And metamorphosis is our destiny. Humans, dogs, snakes, flies, bacteria, fungi, plants, birds, we are all expressions of this same life. And there is one life that animates us all. The same life that flows in all of us and created these vast forms of diversities is the same life that happened through metamorphosis. I could use, sure, a theological term for metamorphosis, and I could start talking about conversion, but, 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 but it doesn't get it all. And when I talk about conversion, I'm not talking whatsoever about a theology of atonement, God forbid, but rather conversion as a metanoia, a change, a change of the mind that shifts hearts and body. The conversion kind of relating to metamorphosis is, is the shift, if we start from the theological grounds, the shift from the scene of separateness from other earthly beings into the folding of God's love in every single creature and thing on earth. See, but, but my problem with conversion, that's why I'm not using, is that there is, there's no river in it, is there? Is there? 
very little, if any, materiality and bodies. It's always here, right? For instance, I could use uh, Bernard Lonergan's book, Method in Theology, where he says that conversion is a change of horizons, of points of view, and it affects the intellectual, moral, and religious structures of our beings. Well, you see, conversion is a change of mind, moral, and costumes. There's nothing to do with any other form of life. There's no relation to space with this kind of conversion. Still, it's a leap of faith, an internal, internal movement of, and one is affected by the natural world. And, and, and yes, there's an ethics involved, but only a human ethics in this conversion. So metamorphosis, which can mean for now uh, a, a conversion that entails bodies relating, moving, and affecting each other. Rather than a leap of faith, it is a symbiotic process of transformation. It is a way of understanding that the land we live on is constitutive of ourselves and allowing ourselves to be guided and guide this relationality. Thus, metamorphosis are a certain kind of remembering us back to what coloniality took away from us, to plant us back where coloniality ripped us apart. It is to recreate the memory once had that we are folding back and again to the earth as the body of God, as Sally McFaig would say. It is a becoming again of what we have never stopped being, the earth, the earth. In Latin America, the brothers Leonardo and Clodovis Boff say that in order to do liberation theology, one must go through a conversion of class in order to understand God's preferential option for the poor. A rather difficult conversion for sure, but a fundamental one we believe. And now, as I listen to the earth, I need to expand that. I believe we need more than the conversion of class. We need to go through a, a, re, a, a larger conversion, a metamorphosis that I'm alluding here that demands that, that I, I be converted to other species, a, a species conversion, and become a part of the animal, vegetal, and mineral uh, species. So the class struggle that I bring from Latin America, which is only human for the most part, now I think that this clash has to include bacteria, planets, waters, trees, animals, plants, a combination of that liberation theology. With, so that would be something like a combination of liberation theology, George Orwell, uh, animals farm, and Donna Haraway's making kin with other species. That's kind of what I'm trying to do. And Lynn Margolis symbiosis. So you put all this together, and there's fire everywhere. In fact, the, 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 the metanoia, conversion, metamorphosis, entail indeed a, a change of path, of resources, of concerns, of awareness. It demands a change in our understanding of time. And this is hard for us Christians because no more teleological theology with an absolute end. Rather, a cyclical understanding of life as God moving through life and death and life again. Everything that goes through birth, it's an incarnation of something that was already there before. And since God, we can call it the origin of the incarnation, everything then exists is God. Oh, I'm getting into a, a, a trouble, muddy waters here. I'm going to run right away, away from it right now. English writer Samuel Butler would say that all living forms, whether animals or vegetables, are in reality one animal. And the moss being part of the same vast person in no figurative sense, but with as much bona fide, literal truth, as when we say that a man's fingernails and his eyes are part of the same man. It is in this person that we may see the body of God and the evolution of this person, the mystery of his incarnation. That was said a long time ago. That's something for another lecture, another day. But we'll continue to do it going around it.
In the creation story, God breathed life into Adam and Eve, right? Before the breath of life is God. And it is the very air that we breathe. So every living being carries or has carried one form or another of the breath that God breathed. The atmosphere is God's breath. Because it's the air. If you want to follow the Big Bang, and you see that was the plants who we couldn't, who we couldn't care less about them. They're the ones who created air. And we breathe because of them. Metamorphosis. We are all interconnected. It's more than interconnected, interrelated, and intertwined. It's more. It's about being with. But we are more than, we are, more, we are each other's multiplicities. We can only exist because we come out of a mixture of other beings. You know that you have in your body more bacteria that are not human that makes you human. Some of the uh, biology people here will know that. When I knew that, I said, oh, I have no human things that make me human. Wouldn't that help us to lead into interreligious dialogue? Or interspecies dialogue? I'm not saying that perhaps the others are the humans and we are the non-humans if we are doing interreligious dialogue, but we can talk about that another day. We are the crossings of, I was just kidding, by the way. Uh, we are crossing, crossing of spirits and bacteria. There is in ourselves the presence of the DNA of all of the ancestors of the earth. Not only humans, but plants, animals, fungi. And that memory helps us to recover relation, the relationship with the land. When our dogs and, or cats cover their poop, for instance, they have in their memory an old way of protection that wolves and cats used to raise their smell from predators. There is in us a knowledge of the earth that we did not cultivate and we forgot. So we forgot the earth is a sentient being. But we made the earth the stupidest thing on earth, that we can only take things away from it. That's why going back to indigenous knowledges is a way of learning, not to do enculturation, not to appropriate, but to learn with them. Because they have walked with the, the land. And they know the law of the land. As we remember the ways of the earth, we almost also forget everything, as Koshia would say. Because all different forms of life can exist. Every living being is a new way in the world, trying to find itself. A way of allowing the world to find home. Isn't that beautiful? That we and every species is a way of allowing the world to find home. Every new life is a new home for the planet. A new way that the planet say, I. And for this to happen, the planet also must forget itself so it can discover itself in new forms of beings." End of quote. That means that biologically speaking, our forgetfulness is an offering to the world to discover itself anew. And I'm talking about biologically because the remembering is all related to the, um, to the uh, colonization that we need to act on yesterday. So two different things, all intertwined and interrelated. So intrinsically, we are related with the earth, that everything in our sharing of life, that even our consciousness is the world's consciousness. As Koshia says, what we call consciousness is nothing but the reflection of this earth upon itself. And every living being is necessarily a consciousness of the world. We must forget new worlds we have forgotten new, new worlds and new ways of living. And we have to remember those. And that's why metamorphosis can help us. And we start to understand that ourselves are much more expensive than just a psychological self somewhere here that you have to go when you go to th therapy. You just have to wrestle with your own self. 
and you don't relate that with the birds, the trees, the worms, and all the environment that we live. And we are the inside and the outside. That's life. The multiplicity of being. There's, the un, there's no ontological divide in that notion of life. That means that when we remember, for instance, Augustine and Calvin's understandings of the sacrament as an outward sign of an inward grace, the sign and the grace is the same. So controversial because we abandon God's real presence in Reformed theology for the transubstantiation of, for Catholic theology, anathema. If there is anything we Protestants are vividly allergic to is idolatry, right? But stay with me. What would we say of the relation between the caterpillar and the butterfly? They are two very distinct and different bodies. They have not much in common when they are each a caterpillar and a butterfly. They are creatures of different worlds. One is the earth and the other is of the air. And yet they come from the same place. They have different shapes, different ways of living, and live in different worlds. They are anatomically distinct. One eats all the time, and the other is responsible for the continuation of the species. And the mystery is, these two incompatible silhouettes, these two different worlds, they are expression of the same self, the same personality. Metamorphosis is the miracle of the impossibility to disconnect or fracture the substantial unity of life. The caterpillar makes enzymes that eat itself of, uh, of the uh, chrysalis and make a soup. Out of that soup, the butterfly comes forth. Prior to making the chrysalis, uh, the caterpillars eat everything they can. After coming out of the chrysalis, they, they are fragile and wet and have to pump blood out of their wings and dry off before they can fly. So let me talk to you in terms of metamorphosis, metamor me uh, metaphorically and non-metaphorically. Our lives are so often the movement of caterpillars and butterflies, isn't it? Your time here at the seminary and the time post-seminary will follow this process. Whatever you eat here, wrestle with, engage here, will be taken into the chrysalis when you move into the next phase. Once in the cocoon, you put the species back together, and that will determine the shape of your ministry and life. You go fly and lay eggs for the cycle to continue. So this lecture today is an invitation for you to feed and eat from sources other than the official canon from the white supremacist mainline theology and to take into the chrysalis the ingredients of something else to form a new body so other forms of life can arise. So I want you to live seminary knowing that ideas come in a material sense, perceived phenomenologically through the senses and here the idea of, of, of the non-metaphorical way of, 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 of meta metamorphosis. It's, it's, it's your question, what, is, what it means to, to hear the earth, to see, to taste, to touch, to smell, and from those experiences with each other, where we walk and leave, all those things com will compose our worlds and expand our worlds. And if you don't take that from what we see and feel and, and make sense, which means make sense through the senses, it will just be this ethereal spirituality that we start to keep looking for God somewhere. When you think about theology, you have to think about doing, relating, being affected. Ritual is the showing of a doing, as Tom Driver would say. So if you continue theology to a larger cosmology, so metamorphosis is to enlarge your cosmology. 
where we are never alone, but rather constituted by so many. Again, we are legions of oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, carbon, calcium, phosphorus that exist in so many other forms of life. We are composed of organs, tissues, bacteria, cells. We have 37.2 trillion cells in our bodies, and many of them, as I said, are not human. And all of them are always working together to have us live well. Our bodies are not individualistic but work in a collective way, caring for each other. That's how we are metamorphosis. That's the heart of our existence. So when we say that God was incarnated on Jesus, in Jesus, Jesus was a product of the human and the non-human cells that composed his body. Jesus' body was also constituted by legions of other beings because he was also a beautiful metamorphosis. In that way, we must say that life is not only human, but fully more than human. And life cannot be reduced to a moral anatomic identity, which means the presence of God also cannot be reduced to a philosophical category of real presence, for instance, called substantiation, for instance, or transubstantiation. The theological notion of the sacrament as the outward side of an inward grace can be the movement between the caterpillar and the butterfly. Or we can return to St. Augustine who said, and you have it there in Salmon, uh, Sermon 272, he says, If you therefore are Christ's body and members, it is your own mystery that is placed on the Lord's table. It is your own mystery. He's not talking about God's mystery either. It's your own mystery that, your own, that you are receiving. You are saying amen to, not to what God is, but what? To what you are. Your response is a personal signature affirming your faith. When you hear, listen to this, when you hear the body of Christ, you reply, Amen. Be a member of Christ's body then, so that your Amen may ring through. I'm not saying this. It's Augustine. <laughs> See, the grapes come from a plant that came from seeds that germinated in the topsoil that was made of earthworms, fungi, bacteria, protozoa, and even mammals. So when we eat the bread of communion, we are eating the miracle of all of these agents, of all of these organisms that are there also giving us life. Nourish God nourishing us from all of these forms of life. From the very beginning, from the seeds, the topsoil, the bread and the wine. When we touch the topsoil, we are touching the body of Christ. It doesn't need, we don't need to go to church to have the body of Christ. Trey, cut this part, move back. Let's continue. And I'm going to just cut another part that I'm going to say. And Don't leave. And when we poop, we are pooping who we are. Holy shit. <laughs> we ate the sacrament. It's one thing. Biologically not wrong. Theologically completely wrong, but biologically not. So when we study theology... We must do an inventory of the voices that came before us and shaped our thinking. And I don't mean to say all Reformed people came from Calvin or Lutherans came from Luther. It must be more nuanced and deeper than that. The conditions of the possibilities of our Western theological thinking have been molded by much vaster influences than surely Calvin entails. How did the sources make you and me who we are and our ways of living together in the world that we have created? A host of infinity of traces comes from modernity and enlightenment. We are hairs on modernity and Western thinkers, which is the forms of knowing that entail the loss of the body's knowing. The confidence in the body senses. We don't have confidence in our body senses. The loss of the mysteries, 
the loss of the unknowns, of the presence of other spirits, and the loss of forms of affections. Everything became marked by a Cartesian rationality. So when Descartes says, what, I, what am I? And creates the method of doubt, he separates substance between uh, rex extensa and rex cogitans. Rex extensa, the extended thing, it is the physical world. And rex cogitans is the thinking thing, or the realm of the mind and consciousness. For him, the most important thing was the mind. And the mind doesn't occupy space. So we have a spaceless way of thinking which does not consider one's own body or where we are, much less other beings. What can, uh, what can a proof, can be a proof that I exist? Only one thing, he says, the fact that I doubt. And if I doubt, I think. I think? Therefore, all we need is a mind and nothing else. A body is, uh, in a space is not necessary. A main point of his work is from the item 52 from his principles. Created substances, however, whether corporeal or, or thinking, may be conceived under this common concept. For these are things which, in order to their existence, stand in the need of nothing but the concourse of God. What interests her here, my friends, the fact that Descartes established this dualism of, of substances, mind, thinking, consciousness, and the physical world, saying that things don't depend on anything, but they are completely independent on, uh, of anything else. Then he establishes this disconnection from the earth. So we are independent, autonomous beings, and everything else follows. Liberal politics, individual rights, values, my theology, my God, when it's taken away from the our God, and so on and so forth. So this is exactly the opposite of what uh, a metamorphosis is because there's no autonomy. Everybody belongs to everybody, everything. So we can see that also in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis where individuals' desires and correlations only matters to humans. Oh, you have to take care of, you know, you have to think about your mother, your father, and, and the other, but that's it. Christian theology works with a God as a causa sui. And Christian spirituality is a series of abstractions related to symbol and liturg liturgical practice disconnected from the earth. This practice engages a self-contained space, which is a way within where everything must be controlled, organized, and possessed. The fear of going beyond, the anxiety of bodies living different sexualities, dressing up differently, the fear of being affected by space is a part of modern sense of placeless self. Everything listed above is opposed to metamorphosis. So the self-separatedness from the environment and the establishing of a dualism between the in and the out, the faith that works within, the field that warms the heart, goes hand in hand with the loss of place and space. Luther's war, uh, uh, conversion, Wesley warming of the heart, all the faith happens within. But then I don't know if you have uh, read this Brazilian fantastic theologian who has died no long ago, Victor Vestela. In his fantastic book, Eschatology and Space, the Lost Dimension in Theology, Past and Presence, explains space from the notion of eschatology, and he says, it is there, eschatology discourse in Western modernity has been sequestered by the dominance of historical thinking, confined to time and bound up to the tropes that we created uh, from the movements of the earth around the sun, this, his, this thinking offers longitudinal trajectories by which truth and final verifiability is exclusively time-bound. But this is, in fact, a long-lasting Western narrative that predates modernity. It can be traced back in theology to early 5th century. Orosius and his mentor Augustine offered a view of history as the church's pilgrimage into the progressive unfolding of time. 
while paganism was represented as an aimless, spatial wandering in unchallenged tradition, both in Christianity and also in the secular around in a purposeless endeavor. So that's why when we Christians connect to a tree, hug a tree, or pay attention to the river, pagan! Because you don't do materiality. Idolatry. Anything that smells materiality or gains some materiality goes into the gutter of idolatry. If we are to survive the next year, my friends, we must regain that sense of space and place in our theologies and spiritualities and rituals. So much has been done with regards to race, gender, sexuality, ableism, but most of it unrelated to the earth, detached still from the earth. And if we are doing theology, we must consider the environment, the landscape, and the landscape is not there. This is not the landscape of, of the seminar. That landscape is me. It's you. When I'm talking about the trees and the topsoil and you and this building are all the same. Very different, but all the same. So we have to, to understand that where we belong. We say we belong to God. What does God entail? Don Pedro Gasaudaliga, one of the best Christians I've ever heard of, he writes uh, from Brazil. He talks about a major shift at the heart of our conversion and metamorphosis. He says, only later, and I, under, and, and I can ring this with myself later, only later I understood that the signs of times need to be complemented with the signs of places. The signs of times must, must be complemented with the signs of places. Because modernity took away the notion of space, of land, much of Protestant theology has oriented ourselves to a sense of, of sacred that is found in the thinking through abstract ideas, small bites of Eucharist, withholding our touch and, 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 and hiding in buildings. Our relation to the natural world is a theological war on space things, materiality, and idolatry. We have allowed our faith to be shaped by a form of knowing that is compartmentalized. And life is only possible in certain compartments under a closer, closed system of knowledge that must be known to the Western understanding of life. Don't mess up with my field. You have your own. Hairs of modernism, we can live with knowledges different than ours, be it other forms of human life, of life within the natural world. And it was French philosopher uh, Didier de Beuze that claims that the moderns invented the concept of nature to, in inhabited, to inhabit the earth. Paralyzed by that which they could not control, the Europeans invented this concept in order to master it. Because they couldn't live with it. Moreover, that invention of the concept is a, a, a difference, is presupposed between nature and earth. Let us then need this difference. The earth would be the common ground that we could inhabit in multiple ways, where nature would mark a particular way of relating to it. The confusion between nature and earth, he says, to which we have become accustomed, is not the result of chance or accidental external to the application of the concept of nature. It is part of inherent tendencies of the concept. A tendency to hegemony. A propensity of the concept and the categories that make it work to take over all space. Even annihilating the other ways of relating to and inhabiting the earth. What seems to be fundamental is to know how this invention of nature, absolutely situated in time and space, could propagate in such a way and impose itself as the only modality of relationship with the earth shaping both epistemology and metaphysics that derive from it. We are all heirs of that. 
The whole colonization enterprise was already a project of domination and imposition and control. When settlers came to the Americas and invaded the land, their religiosity and their sense of mastery came with them. So the invention of nature mirrored the invasion of racism and continued on male dominance. This form of power over control and possession shaped schools and our forms of learning. The way of knowing became a way to dominate objects and rule over subjects. Willie Jennings, in his spellbinding book, After Whiteness, An Education in Belonging, described our education as based on the image of an educated person that propels the curricular, pedagogical, and formational energies of Western education, and especially theological education, he says. That image is of a white, self-sufficient man, his self-sufficiency defined by possession, control, and mastery. Based on energies of white, self-sufficient masculinity. End of quote. He continues saying, white, self-sufficient masculinity is not a person or a people. It is a way of organizing life with ideas and forming a persona that distorts, distorts identity and strangles the possibilities of dense life together. He continues, in this regard, may, my use of the term whiteness does not refer to people of European descent but to a way of being in the world and seeing the world that forms cognitive and affective structures able to seduce people into its habitation and meaning making. End of quote. Education follows the masculine white male form of living by mastering the fragments and thinking that there's no fragments, only a whole so that you can master the unknown. Or think that you're mastering the unknown by mastering the subjects, ruling over people, animal, and nature, and you have a thought for me, for you, and for everybody else. We also control rituals and hold to the fullness of the knowledge of rituals. We cannot have anything outside of the order or we get lost. This project is nothing more than an illusion of mastery, a wish of possession, a dream of control, and it happens under the rubrics of violence. Due to its unattainable condition, this mastery must be conquered by brutalism, by says of stricto sensus evaluations, by showing of a doing mastery. Jennings will say that this desire for self-sufficiency, mastery, possession, and control comes from where? From the plantations, where the master's dream or the modern colonialist dreams was to give rise to the masculine sufficiency and perpetuate his control. He continues saying that institutions are caught up in the historical trajectory of a plantation pedagogy that teaches us how to be institutional man, which is how to aim at becoming a master. Jennings states that modern education was formed in plantation's desire with all of the strictures under the badges of honor. Education lip sinks the words of the colonial masters who, and I quote him again, will care for my colonial holding and my legacy when I'm done, when I'm gone too. Modern education was formed in plantation desires and spilled over our schools. So unless we change the ways of the education, our knowledges and way of knowing, what comprehends our cognition, constitutes our desires and ways of living, we are going to destroy everything we built under the plantation desires of mastery. We need alternative ways of knowing that are based not on mastery, 
but on real metamorphosis and mutual belongs that connect, relate, put together, and bless each other. If we think of metamorphosis in our seminaries, what are the rivers and the seas in the spiritualities of your learning? Is there any tree in your prayer? Do our songs have any animals in them? What about our theologies? Do our theologies have other beings besides humans? It's all about human, 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 human. In our worship services, do we honor God the same way that we honor other species and the land we live? Do we connect with God through the earth? So to think through metamorphosis is so difficult, isn't it? Because it shakes so many things. I became a father five years ago, and that changed the core of my being. My wife was a widow, and I adopted my three kids, and it was then that started to think about their future in the ways that I had never done before. My son Ike just turned 10 years, 10, and last Sunday he told me in one of our night conversations when we always pray together, that one of the, his biggest fears is that the sun will explode. And that also means that the earth will be too hot and you won't be able to live. Ten years old. What do I tell him? Oh, no, no, we're going to be fine. Do I use my, my Christian eschatology and say, you know, that's not important. Because what is important is our life in heaven with God. And we'll live with God. And I start to see that, that this th theology is troublesome. And, and, and my traditional eschatology might not serve for our times. Not the way it has been composed. There are other ways to do our eschatology. If we fear what scientists are saying about the climate catastrophe, we see that we are in a very scary situation. The freshmen are going on now around everywhere in the world. It will be the young folks who will suffer the most, who will suffer the most. They will live in a world with temperature higher than two Celsius. They will most likely live in poverty. They will live in regions impacted by climate change. They will be alive if they'll be alive when the earth reaches the tipping point, when runaway climate change is no longer avoidable and cannot be changed anymore. And they will be the least responsible for the conditions of our existence. However, if we still, we are still living as if nothing is happening. We just go about our lives without any emergency. That's why I'm gonna do the last lecture as emergency. But where is the emergency in your readings, my brother? Is there any Bart in panic? Is there any Calvin desperate saying, God have mercy? Here's how we are living. We are burning, my friends. We are going out about our lives and work as if climate change are fake news or something that really not be needed concern, be concerned about. My friends, if you don't stop, 
And I'm here, the apocalyptic preacher, as you can see. Care for the earth. We must change our ways of studying, relating, worshiping, teaching, learning right now. But we hear it and we say, oh, yeah, I know. It's going to happen. But, you know, we have, we have technology. That technology will save us. We are smart. We are living under the auspices of the Greek goddess Cassandra. Have you heard of the, the, the god Cassandra? The goddess Cassandra? Cassandra was blessed and cursed by Apollo. The gift was the gift of prophecy. Cassandra could predict what the future was unfolding to the people. However, Apollo cursed her in this way. Nobody who listens to you will believe you. <laughs> That's what is happening right now. The scientists are the Cassandras of our time. They're telling us we must stop. And it's like, ah, you're exaggerating. Peter McDonald, professor of environmental studies at the University of Montana, says that there are four ways to respond to climate disasters. Fervent action, doing something right away, uh, recycling, trying to mitigate whatever we can the situation. Apathy, which is a way of saying, well, that is true, but there's nothing we can do. Evangelism, which is happening right now. And denial, both from the big corporations who create fake news, saying this is a hoax, or those who know the situation is severe, but they can live as if they don't know about it. Meanwhile, we are taking, we are talking about the loss of topsoil all around the earth and the poisoning of the soil by the death of pollinators, death of insects because of, of, of poisoning. And also there is the poisoning and acidification and warming of the oceans with larger portions of the oceans already dead. Glaciers are not disappearing in 100 years, my friends. Glaciers are disappearing in 15 years. You're going to see it all. The increase of the desertification. We have less than 20% of forests around the world. Toxic air. Massive storms, wildfires, droughts, floods, famine, growth of immigration and climate change, refugees, the loss of clean waters, the current sex massive extinction going on and on. And it, I can keep going. All of this with the complicity of the governments, left and right. Democrats and Republicans, they're all the same. And my heart started to feel so anxious about this. And I did not know what to say to my kid. Restlessness, my body feeling restless. We feel so powerless, right? I was reading Robin Kimmerer, that's a must for you, giving a lecture at Union, and after her talk, I felt that it was God calling me. I received her words as an altar call. For those who do altar call here, I, I received it from God and I accepted it. In, in a symbolic way, I said, I accept it. Here I am, and I walk into the front. Here I am, Lord, 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 send me. And then I had to change everything. From that day, I could not turn back. I was reading, writing a book, the book that I was, I was supposed to do a, my book, launching of my new book here, but it didn't arrive. It's going to arrive tomorrow. Like that. Uh, uh, but I had to change my whole book. Not my whole book. Half of it is without much of the earth. The other half is all about the earth. <laughs> I literally took all the courses that I was teaching for 10 years. Of course, every year is a different one. But I got them all in what I did into the garbage. And I started to create new courses, new ways of reading, teaching, and living together. I needed a conversion, a metanoia. I went into that new path and I started to start climate disaster. And I started to realize that my own field of liturgy is not enough. Theology is not enough. Echo theology is not enough. 
Eco-liturgy is not enough. Then we need to go into other fields, biology, zoology, physics, astronomy, geography, zoology, botany, anthropology, and so on and so forth, things they have no clue about. I feel like my clothes are all cut off. You know, I know a little bit of Descartes. I know a little more of Calvin, let's say. I know a little bit more of all the uh, European knowledges and a little bit of my own people. And here's why I walk. Because I do not want to master anything. I don't master anything. I live off of fragments. That's what I want to do. For the first time, I'm uh, advising a PhD without a uh, student, without the literature that composed the canon of liturgy. That means a large chunk of the field behind. Now, we are reading indigenous scholars, black scholars, Palestinian scholars, Jewish scholars, uh, biologists, anthropologists, eco-theologians, and so on. And I'm learning as much as they are. Have you heard of Lynn Margolis? That's what I started learning after this conversion. A famous biologist who changed the course of biology with her notion of symbiosis. Symbiosis was the way the planet started to cope with the presence of oxygen. She defined symbiosis this way. Symbiosis, the system in which members of different species live in physical contact, strikes us and as an arcane concept of a specialized biological term. This is because of our lack of awareness of its prevalence. Not only are our guts and eyelashes festooned with bacterial and animal symbionts, but if you look at your backyard or community park, symbionts are not obvious, but they are omnipresent. Clover and vetch, common weeds, have little balls on their roots. These are the nit nitrogen-fixing bacteria that are essential for health growth in nitrogen-poor soil. Then take the trees, the maple, the oak, the hickory. As many as 300 different funga, fungal symbionics, the mycorrhizae, see how much I know. We know as mushrooms are entwined in, in, in their roots. Or look at a dog who usually fails to notice the symbiotic worms in his gut. We are symbionts in a symbiotic planet. And if we care to, we can find symbiosis everywhere. So we are all process of the symbiosis, of mutual belongings. See, and here's one important thing. It was a fight during her time that biological mainstream was caught by a cap Capital, capitalist societal uh, ways of seeing life. In a movie called Lynn Margolis, several biologists talks about the ways Darwin was influenced by the capitalist model of organization during the industrial expansion, the Victorian capitalism of his time. One biologist says that Darwin's theory of natural selection based on the struggle for existence is nothing more than the less of Less affair of socioeconomic theory applied to nature. See, the idea of conflict in nature that we have heard is a mere reflection of the conflict of the social world we are living. It was not Darwin, but Herbert Spencer, who shifting Darwin's idea coined the phrase the survival of the fittest. And that new Darwinist idea of fitness came from a quantified attribute based on the quantity of how offsprings one organism has. The new Darwinists used the survival of the fittest to explain how life among humans work. And this idea was spread throughout society. It was Richard Dawkins who came with the idea with a white racist biological idea called the selfish gene saying that every gene fights over others to survive. Now that idea of a selfish gene, selfish, selfish gene fed societal ideas that fed the economic machine and capitalism. 
And that's where we are right now. We are all selfish people. Because there's not many jobs out there, I'm going to have to fight you. And if there's five jobs for all of us, only five people will get, what happened to the rest of us? Uh, fight for yourself. It is not about, well, okay, we all have to share the five salaries into everybody. Or get to the core of it and where the money comes from. Mm -hmm. No. We hear that our world's tough and we must survive. And so that's what you need to do. Are you going to get that steeple church? Or are you going to be a very proud pastor whom everybody will look after and say, he knows ministry. Or are you going to be like that loser pastor who has to work 18 hours and a half and then do three, four churches and look, three churches in a service, in, in a Sunday. He hasn't learned much. Isn't that what we think about it? Bad students, worse students, the survival of the fittest, and the selfish gene create our difficulties with people of lower classes. We admire rich people because they made it. Oh, yeah. That's where we are aiming towards. Same thing with species. We are the top. La creme de la creme. Everything else is just like... We re have reduced the breath of life to us, humans. And we are not even the ones who provide it. It is the plants. But we think that the breath of life only is worth of our living. The same way we can't live uh, with each other, with immigrants, with people of other religions, with people of other races, other sexualities, Forms of ableism. We can't live with the diversity of the land anymore. Today, 75% of the world's food is generated from only 12 plants and five animal species only. Of the 4% of 250,000 to 350,000 known edible plants, only 150 to 200 are used by humans. Only three, rice, maize, and wheat, contribute nearly 6% of the calories and proteins obtained by uh, humans from plants. Oh, my friends, the very core of life comes from the fact that we come from a, a system of solidarity. Everything in your body works for the entire system. There's no selfish genes. Antonio Nobrega tells this, we have... 37 trillion individual cells in our body. The human body is a walking galaxy of cellular system. The system is like the system within the natural world with deep care for each other. Against the neo-Darwinism that insists the cell is a selfish thing, he says that we are composite of care. That's our nature. That's our DNA. But look the difference of who we truly are. What do we have piled up that with original sin? With fight against each other? With capitalism? With racism? With male dominance? Completely opposed to who we are. And that's no wonder why we are getting to the end of it. Shouldn't our Christologies be clusters of this full solidarity? Shouldn't liturgies work on the notion that we are here to deeply care for one another materially and not only in spiritual ways? In conclusion, to go through metanoia, conversion, met metamorphosis is to become a vulnerable body, a whole cluster of gatherings of symbiosis and metamorphosis. That knowledge changes my theology and how I understand God. God might become less transcendent and more imminent, much closer and full of wonder than I ever imagined. So I, I have to accept that not only cultural diversity is necessary, but biological diversity is fundamental. And the diversity of nature as part of myself. 
to care for a member of, the, of your church and to care for a bird outside is the same thing. It's the same thing. What about, about a pastoral theology for the birds, for the squirrels, for the rivers, for the mountains? Two years ago, I created, I'm going to conclude with uh, 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 a worship service at Union called Confessing to Plants. And it, it made, like, it hit the Twitter, and it was the top trend of Twitter of that day. I received hundreds of, of notice in my phone. And even Twitter comments said, is there something, something wrong? I said, I don't know. And, and, and it was because that was shared by a couple uh, uh, evangelical pastors that said, look at those uh, uh, nuts, those liberals. Look what they do. They confess to plants. And the whole idea came from Robin Kimmer, who tells us, you know, when you, when you look at plants, don't call it it. Like indigenous people call us as he or she or they or, 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 or treat as, as, a, as a full living being. So then we decided we processed with the plants to the James Chapel and we put it there. And then uh, I went around and say, you know, I, I've, I've never paid attention to the plants. I just remember my mother talking to them as I was growing up. Oh, your little thing, look how you are today. You are so beautiful. Oh, no. Look at you. I need to take care of you. Oh, it's just talking like this kids. And I go like, mother is old. So I come and tell that testimony. And then I said, I have, if Robin Kimmer tells me to treat you as a, and I don't know exactly how to do this. But let me tell that I'm very sorry that I treated you as decoration. And I'm very sorry. I need to learn more about you. And so I gave the microphone to the people and I thought, and I had, it was a class that I was doing called uh, Rituals in Community uh, about the grief, about grief, natural grief and grief of the natural world. And so I had my students say, you, you must be ready to say because nobody's going to speak. Who's going to talk to me? Uh, and, and, and the thing was, we didn't have enough time for everybody to speak. And one of the uh, participants, one of the students, started crying and she said, I cannot treat you as a living being because I don't have in me the conditions of the possibility to, to grieve all that is happening to you to do the death that you're going through. I don't know if I have enough. And then start crying. I said, gosh, she got it. She got it. Perhaps on your way today to your room, you can start to look at the tree differently. Don't hug when somebody's around. And, and <laughs> Until you're strong enough to do that. <laughs> but just like, <laughs> I cannot do it here, but I'm seeing you. I was teaching my son, and I'll finish with that. I was teaching my son to pay attention to, to the birds. One day, I, I was taking my, my, all my kids, and I said, stop it. <gasps> you see that? And it was like, what? Do <gasps> you see it? See what? Can you hear it? Hear what? <gasps> the birds. And my, my door said, oh, here that comes again. And, 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 but, but Ike uh, was, he was listening. So one day, after, I don't know, a month or so, I'm walking him to the bus stop and said, Dad, stop. Can you hear it? And I said, hear what? No, can you hear it? He said, hear what? The birds. That's how we start to pay attention and to start to change. Thank you very much.